we've been following the story of God, we're going to be in 1 Samuel again, which is the ninth book. So if you've got the Bible, you can thumb through to the ninth book and you'll find 1 Samuel. We've been following along for, since January, this story of God. Quick recap, like if you see any show on TV, they have the uh, recap in the beginning, fast recap. God created all things. He was before all things. He created all things. Uh, he created mankind. Mankind chose rebellion. And in doing so, sin entered the world. Death entered the world with sin. And everything has been dying ever since. But even in that moment, God made this promise to the woman that he created that a child, a seed, a descendant of her would be the one who would redeem mankind. That descendant is God himself. That promised seed would be God himself. And we've been following the story of God ever since. So we go from Adam and Eve to uh, their children, Cain and Abel, to their children, to their children. We come to a flood. Uh, where God wipes the world out for a moment but carries his promise on through Noah, as you know. Then it goes through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob's name's changed to Israel. Israel is a man who ultimately grows into a whole family and tribes of families. Twelve of them, to be specific, become the twelve tribes of Israel. Hundreds of years later, they find themselves in slavery in Egypt. God raises up Moses, who delivers them. Uh, out and returns them to the land that was originally given to Abraham. And there they are. Yet, in the land, they begin to rebel against God again, and sin continues to flash back and forth, and God enters this process of delivering them and them going back, and delivering them and them going back, and that's the story of Judges. Um, and we move from this time of Judges to this time of Kings. And that's where we're at right now, where they demand a king. God gives them a king. It's Saul. He's a pretty horrible king. We've already talked about all that. But then God promises David to be uh, the next king. And that's where we are right now. And I know this title, Perfect Vengeance, seems pretty strange. Uh, maybe even a little bit shocking. And we'll explain it. But is there such a thing as perfect vengeance? Or is it even wrong to say that? Uh, I'll give you a full background in a second, but David now is in a cave in the text we're in. He's been chased there, in essence, by Saul, and he says this. So if you've got a Bible, look at verse Samuel, chapter 24, in verse 14. It says, after whom David speaking to Saul, he says, after whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? A dead, I'm a dead dog after a flea. May the Lord therefore judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. Lord, your word is amazing, awesome, incredible. I love it. I thank you again for giving it to us. Uh, not, not, not just me, us. I thank you for trusting it with me, with us. I thank you, Lord, that again, as I always say, I'm reminded there's blood on it, that there's people who have bled to put this book in my hand. And there are people bleeding today to have it and keep it. Let us never take that for granted. It's your word. I'm here to be a student like anybody else. I am here to hear from you, even though I realize I'm holding the microphone. I realize I've done the study. Um, but, God, I still look forward to hearing what you say. And I, I never want to put my words in your mouth. I want your words in mine. And I say these things in Christ's name. Amen. So last week I quoted uh, Stephen Furtick, and I said, um, you know, I was pointing out his misapplication of 
scripture and made the point that uh, I wouldn't recommend listening to him. Now, I actually paused. I started to say more than that because I have a pretty strong opinion about him. So I started to say more than that, but I ended up pausing and only said I wouldn't recommend him. Um, but what made me hold back from saying what I really want to say? If it's true, you know, if, if it's not a lie, if it's true, why do I care what I say if it's justified, you know? Modern teachers of the word sometimes, they they can be hard to sort out some of these guys. Are they actually genuinely in it, you know, for the truth? Or are they in it for gain? Either way, is it my opportunity with a microphone, especially, is it my opportunity to expose them, to take from them? Um, what if I'm not 100% sure? Sometimes it can be complicated. Should I attack them publicly? I'm not saying there's not a cause for defending the truth and calling out things that are. But here's the point today. It's on your sheet. We're going to get into this. Here's the point today. It's on your sheet. If you got one, if you didn't, you can get those on the way back. And if not, that's okay. But it's just a point to remember when we face opportunities to take something, whatever it is, we should first be clear about God's plan and then approach the moment with humility and respect for his design. Okay. All right. You can reread that on the sheet if you got it back there. So here's a quick background. David's growing up. So, uh, Saul is recognizing that his reign is coming to a close. He should have already known it because Samuel told him a long time ago. And Samuel's already anointed David as king as a boy, and he's growing up. And because of his victory over Goliath, his popularity, David's popularity, has grown with the people. And all these people are starting to follow him and celebrate him. And he even becomes a servant, though, of Saul. And Saul's own son becomes his best friend. He marries Saul's daughter. So he's in deep with the Saul family here. But... Saul's going back and forth between loving him and hating him. And it's beginning to drive Saul mad uh, until it's clear to everyone that Saul actually wants David dead. So David goes on the run. The first thing he does is he tries to get out of the country. So he goes to a foreign uh, space. And then he realizes that he's hated in that foreign space because he's an enemy. So he ends up fleeing from there. And he ends up in this place. And you don't have to turn to it, but First Samuel 22, verse 1 says, David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Abdullam. Um, don't worry about anything other than the fact at the moment it's a cave. Can you imagine the confusion and the loneliness? Put yourself here for a minute. He, he wrote about it. You can, you can be clear how he felt because he wrote about it. I won't read all of it. You can do it in your own time. But Psalm 142 the little subheading underneath it literally says, A masculine of David when he was in the cave. He says in verse 5, I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Hear my cry, like attend to it. I'm brought very low. Deliver me from my, my persecutors, for they're too strong for me. Talking about Saul. Bring me out of prison that I may give thanks to your name. In Psalm 57, he wrote another one. Again, it says, subtitle says, when he fled from Saul in the cave. Verse 1 says, be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me, for I'm in, uh, in you. My soul takes refuge in the shadow of your wings. I'll take refuge. Watch this. Till the storms of destruction pass. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. What was his purpose for David? 
be king. Like he knew it. So he's, he's crying out. about. I'm, I'm in a cave. I'm all by myself. I'm alone. He'll sin from heaven and save me. He'll put me. He'll put to shame him. A singular him. Saul. Him who tramples on me. Um, almost immediately, though, when he gets to that cave of Adullam, back in 1 Samuel 22 and verse 1, it says, When his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul, they all gathered to him. Before you think about how great that is, think about those people. Just saying. I'm sure he wasn't crying, but do you really want all the people in debt, all the people who are bitter in soul? <laughs> I mean, they're frustrated with Saul and the government as it were. But still, that's, that, this is the crowd, to say the least. And he became commander over them, and there were with him about 400 men. So there's obviously more than that because there's women and children, but there's 400 men. So there's a lot. Saul continues, though, to hunt down David with everything he has because the size of David's people now, not just David now, there are people following him, and the size is growing. And as a result, David begins to move around uh, looking for a place of safety. Saul goes mad with anger. And anyone who helps David now becomes threatened uh, to the point that he actually kills 80, slaughters 80 priests and an entire city, town, whatever, because they help David. Um, And David knows, he hears about it. Meanwhile, Israel's enemies have started to attack, knowing there's this division and weakness, they've started to attack. And in the process of attacking, um, David now has taken the responsibility on himself to defend Israel too. So he's running from Saul, governing these people, and defending Israel from enemies who are trying to get in. So you got all the picture. Well, he ends up near the Dead Sea in an area called En Gedi. Uh, there's large caves there, cliff walls. The Bible calls it a stronghold. It's remote. It's harsh. It's hard to reach. It's hard to live in. Molly and I have been there and seen it. I got a few pictures of it, uh, the general area. That looks like where we live to some degree. It's not quite that bad, but uh, you can see tough spot. Tough spot. You can just click through them. There's like four or so. Uh, tough spot. There's some caves. Don't know that any one of those is the one, but there are caves all through there. So you can get the feel. You get the picture. You get the image. You understand um, where he's at with all of these people, particularly at least his soldiers. So months, years have passed since that little boy slayed this giant. Years of running, years of hiding. Imagine it. Pull yourself into the moment. You know, knowing you're going to be king. And you slayed a giant. But you're living in extremely harsh conditions while you're being hunted every day. And not only that, but you have these families, these people These soldiers even who have followed you faithfully, they've been on the run with you now in that environment being hunted just like you're hunted. And they're all expecting the day by faith when God's going to make you king. We believe that's going to happen. I got to imagine we're getting wore out with it, though. You know what I mean? But 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 they're believing that's going to happen. So that brings us to today. So first Samuel 24. We're going to cover a chunk here quickly, so if you've got a Bible, you're going to want to follow along. Verse 1 says, When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he had to pause from chasing David to go stop a Philistine raid himself. 
And then he comes back and he finds out David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. So somebody tells him Saul then took 3,000 chosen men, like super soldiers, out of all of Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave. Same area down here I just showed you. And Saul went to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost part of the cave. Relieve himself here, it literally says to cover his feet. Uh, it's most likely a euphemism for using the bathroom. Uh, there's a clear reference to that same phrase in Judges with Ehud. We talked about him. You can go back a few weeks and look that back up if you want where there's someone using the restroom and that's the same language. So that's probably what it means. But either way, it definitely means he's looking for some relief. You saw what the environment looks like. He probably wanted to get out of the sun. If you've ever climbed Camelback, you know what it feels like to want to get out of the sun. Okay, so either way, at some degree, whether the bathroom or not, he was looking for a place to get some relief. Why didn't Saul notice the men that are in this cave? There's a lot of them. Um... There is a crazy Jewish story, that the old Jewish story, that says that God sent a spider that built a web to, 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 so he couldn't see behind the web where the men were. I don't think it's that fanciful. I think it's pretty simple. It says they were in the back of the cave. They're not sitting around a campfire, you know, not in the back of a cave. You'd be choking yourself out. And they're not just hanging out in the back of the cave because nobody would do that. You, you would corner yourself. And you would have no idea who's sneaking up on you. I think it seems much more likely that they saw Saul and the army coming and they took, they jumped into the back of that cave and backed up in there to get out of sight and probably kept backing up. We don't know how deep it was, but kept backing up to get in the, into the dark out of sight. And Saul apparently needing a break here, maybe even an outhouse as well. Uh, he paused the march and he looks for shade. And he finds this cave, he's exhausted from the heat, and he may even have fallen asleep. I mean, I'm, I'm adding that to be fair. I don't, we don't know. But we know he's looking for a place to use the restroom. We know he's looking for a place to re- get some relief from the heat. And either way, he's oblivious to who's in the darkness. No doubt about that. Verse 4. The men of David said to him, here's the day of which the Lord has said to you. Probably, they probably didn't shout it. They are probably, here's the day of which, you know, they were telling him. Said to you, behold, I will give your enemy into your hand and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. Now, if you underline it, one, two, three, four, five, in my translation, five times you or your. You or your. Then David arose and stealthily, it means in secrecy, cut off a corner of Saul's robe. This is such a difficult thing, man. How do we know you got trusted friends saying, dude, God promised you. God promised you. Like, this is your moment. Look what he did. Look what, could you believe what God did for you? He brought him right, separated from his army, placed him right in your hands. It's like that old illustration that people used to say about uh, being on a roof in a flood and praying for God to send a miracle. And he sends a boat and you ignore it, you know, or whatever. But, but it's not always that simple as it sometimes like we're, maybe God wants you to stay on the roof. I don't know. It's not always that simple in black and white. It's not always that obvious. So how do you know? Well, first of all, what exactly had God said about this whole transfer of kingship? Uh, A couple of verses. Samuel told Saul before David, 
Samuel told Saul in 1 Samuel 15, 28, Samuel said to Saul, the Lord has torn, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day. And he has given it to a neighbor of yours who's better than you. Jonathan, Samuel, uh, Saul's son, who was David's best friend, told David in 1 Samuel 20, verse 15, don't cut off your love or your grace from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. It's, it's all acts of God here. It's not an act of David per se. But we can twist things and we can justify things and we can try to make it read the way we want it to. People do this all the time. We do it too if we're not careful. What God really meant was, or you know, what this really was supposed to look like is... And apparently, to some degree, that's exactly what God, what David did here, or at least attempted to do. It says David arose. It, it, it's more of a definitive. It's more of a definitive statement than just he got up. In fact, he didn't. He's moving stealthily. He's probably creeping. He's anything but standing up and walking over there. The word is more of a language of aggression, like he's rising up into attack mode. I don't think the plan, and this is me personally, but I don't think the plan here was only for the fabric. I think the fabric is about all he got before God intervened. Regardless of how you see it, it was his clear intent was malicious here without a doubt. Without, without a doubt. Because, look what happens. Verse 5, afterward, David's heart struck him. Because he'd cut off a corner of Saul's robe. So whether that was his intent or not, even that was enough. The intent of his heart was there for more. Um, there's not necessarily a sense of guilt here. The language is pretty interesting. It says his heart attacked him. Like, not a heart attack. It's like a heart that attacks. In fact, it's sudden and shocking the way it's put here. Almost like he was caught off guard by it. Literally, it reads like this. And he was after this, and he struck or hit the heart of David. Now, there's differences in the sentence structure with the Hebrew language. I get all that. But even in the simple transliteration like that, it sounds interesting. He struck or hit the heart of David. I think... I think David's intent here was, if nothing else, aggressive at Saul, perhaps to kill Saul. But God gets in his way. God jerks his heart. I don't know what that looked like or felt like, but I can't imagine it was pleasant. Either way, it got his attention real quick. This is not simply about David having amazing character. This is about David learning character. Because God intervenes. It, it will be God who has Saul removed, not David. And in God's time, and David will be king, but not today. Not today. All right, look at verse 6. It says, and he said to the men, the Lord forbid, clearly, that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed. Uh, the word anointed there is the same word for Messiah. It just means king, the Lord's chosen king, to put out my hand against him, my hand, seeing now, seeing now that he is the Lord's anointed. See how that's worded? Like he's been shook awake. Hey, buddy, it's not yours. He's mine. Right or wrong, he's still mine. 
Verse 7. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. They weren't by, I don't think they were buying David's decision here. Did not permit them. Did you see that? Bro, this is the hand of God very clearly. And if you're too blind to see it, we'll handle it. I mean, he's all by himself, so we got this. We'll handle I mean, David has to talk them down. It literally says he split his men. That's what it literally means. So he's, he's, he is all but dividing them, trying to say, stop. No, it's not going to happen. You ever have spiritual people mock you for something that seems foolish to them? I'm not talking about being bold when nobody else is. I'm talking about being humble when nobody else is. This one's not real popular these days, honestly. Our world's full of spiritual people and Christians, the same, who insist on cause after cause after cause after cause and fighting every single political battle, every single social war, and stating that anybody who doesn't is ignorant. Even if we're, even if people are saying we're trusting God for this or we're allowing God for this or we're praying for this, I don't know, you're ignorant, you're, you're lazy. Uh, same kind of thing. But fortunately, David persuades them. Maybe he says, listen, I got a plan. All right, I got a plan. So look what he does. Verse 8. Afterward, David also arose. So this time he gets up again. Uh, and this time it's the same word, but this time he's got a strategy that's a little less violent. And he went out of the cave. So now by now Saul's out. So he goes out and calls after Saul, my lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. Imagine this. I mean, that's ultimate submission. You're on the ground. Your face and nose are in the dirt. Also, completely vulnerable to attack. So just a minute ago, Saul was completely vulnerable to attack and didn't know it. And now David has walked out in front of all his men and all but surrendered. He didn't. But, I mean, he's laid himself completely vulnerable to attack in the ground. What does this do? Think about the display of faith here. When he says God has got complete control, he believes it, don't he? He believes it. Enough so that he's exposed his whole, you know, body here in laid out in submission. Verse 9 says, and David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men? That's a great line right there. You could underline that and put a big square around it. Why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks you harm? It's not true. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you into my hand in the cave. He's still coming out of the cave, and now you realize I was in there. And some, (laughs) some, it will be the people that told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, he is actually his father, his father-in-law. See the corner of your robe? Holds it up. It's in my hand here. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there's no wrong or treason in my hands. I've not sinned against you, though you hunt me my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you, and may the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. Can you say that? It's easy to read it, but can you say it? How about... To somebody you think is destroying everything you care about. Not saying we shouldn't stand up, so don't don't mistake that. Not saying we shouldn't stand up. All I'm saying is, in this case, 
This man is destroying everything David cares about, including his country, and chasing him and trying to kill him. And he's still saying these words. And it's not a neutral statement, by the way. May God avenge. Not a neutral statement. He's not saying it's okay. Never said that. Verse 13. As the proverb of the ancient one says, out of the wickedness comes wicked. So... I'm not going to be that dude, is what he's saying here. But my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog, after a flea? You've got a 3,000 men army here chasing a dude hiding in a cave. May the Lord therefore be the judge and may he give sentence between me and you. And may he see to it or consider. And may he plead my case. And may he deliver me from your hand. Now, you think about those words for a hot minute here, okay? Think about those words for a second. He's speaking to Saul, yes, but he's also speaking to God. He's offering a prayer real loud here, and he's bringing God into the situation. When has he done that before? You remember? It's the same thing he did with Goliath. It is the same thing he did with Goliath, publicly, loudly, bringing God into the moment. And just like with Goliath, Dave is making the battle here between Saul and God. And he's laying the right of justice into the hands of God. And therefore, he's placing Saul into the hands of God. And he's telling Saul so. And everybody else who hears it. Everybody who hears it, knowing what God did with Goliath, I feel like those are pretty scary words to hear. You know what I'm saying? I feel like those are pretty scary words to hear. Verse 16, as soon as David had finished speaking these words was uh, to Saul, Saul said, Is this your, vi- your voice, my son David? And he knows who he is. And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He begins to cry, Oh, verse 17, he said to David, You're more righteous than I, for you've repaid me good, whereas... I have repaid you evil, and you've declared this day how you've dealt with me, uh, in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go safe? In other words, if you find your enemy, surely you're going to kill him, but you didn't. So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hands. Swear to me, therefore, so let's make a deal. By the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. These are the real reasons for the tears, perhaps, is he's wants out of the situation and he's like, spare the moment. Verse 22, and David swore this to Saul and Saul went home, but David and his men went back up into the caves. In chapter 26, all of this in a different way, but same kind of scenario plays out again. Not going to go read that. You can read it in your own time. But again, this is the story of God, not the story of David, not the story of Saul, not the story of Israel. It points to Christ. Christ, like David, was born in Bethlehem, uh, raised as a kid. His life was spent as an adult in the wilderness of the earth. Remember, he's not from here. In the wilderness of the earth, pursued by a fallen king, Satan, all over the earth. Like David, he could have killed that king and taken the kingdom by force, but God had another plan. Like David, Jesus roamed the land, hunted by those who wanted to kill him, at the same time delivering the people of Israel from their true enemy, which was sin. 
And those who followed him as true king faced the same threat that he faced day in and day out. Ultimately, Christ faced a cross of suffering and death, yet even there, he still allowed God the Father to be the judge. Uh, and he accepted death for his people, and he bore the sentence of justice for them. But the grave couldn't hold him. No chance. Created all things, had no chance. Three days later, he rose, witnessed by hundreds of people, hundreds and hundreds of people that saw him alive. He is the king, most definitely king of all things alive. And now for us who have faith in him, when Satan, sin, death, threatened to accuse us, you ought to look back at verse 15 and stick it in your head and say it. May the Lord therefore be judge, and may he give sentence between me and you, and may he see Jesus and consider And may Jesus plead my cause, and may Jesus deliver me from your hand. That's what's happened in salvation. Without Christ for justice, though, you face a judge alone. And I hope you have a really good argument and a really good case. Because it's very serious. It might be time to change kings. Just saying. I'll never forget the moment finishing up here but i'll never forget the moment when molly finished reading the bible all the way through it was one of the coolest little moments man uh she said she was in tears and i was like what's the matter and she said it was just the perfect ending you know and closed the book and uh but it is the perfect ending right it is the perfect ending you have jesus kingdom established on heaven and earth fully no sin or rebellion in his kingdom no pain or suffering in his kingdom no hiding and no fear in his kingdom no anger no hate in his kingdom no sorrow no loss in his kingdom no guilt and no shame in his kingdom no loneliness no isolation in in his kingdom but justice and vengeance also comes to perfection and completion through Christ. Everyone who's trusted Christ to be the judge of others as David did will find that he is. That he is. All who defy or reject him, man and angel, all of them delivered to a place the Bible calls outer darkness, lake of fire. It's complete isolation from all the good in God and full exposure to all the wrath and the justice and the vengeance in God. It's reality. There's one way to move from one destiny to the other, and that's to change kings. The way you change kings is you kneel. Call them Lord. You don't need a magic moment. You can do it right now. You can do it anytime you want. You can admit who you are. Can you repent and say, I know I'm a sinner. I know. I know. Can you... Believe who he is. I trust that you are who you say you are. I trust that you did create all things. I believe that. Can you trust what he accomplished? I know I'll never be good enough, but I believe that what you did on the cross is. I believe, I believe that when you say you will save me, I trust that. I believe that's true. Not because of anything good enough that I did, but I believe in what you've done. Can you say that? For those of us who already believe, for those of us who already believe, what do we do with this? Well, uh, first of all, know what God said. 
That's a big win. There's a reason I tell you take a Bible all the time. Know what God said. Like, know what he said. David would likely have known Deuteronomy 32. It says this, Deuteronomy 32, verse 35. Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip, for the day of their calamities at hand, and their doom comes swiftly. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone and there is none remaining bond or free. Moses, uh, excuse me, David would have known that. That was long before his time. Vengeance is mine. And then Moses took it even farther in Exodus 22 and verse 28. He says something that ought to kind of punch you in the gut. You shall not revile God nor... Curse a ruler of your people. Just going to leave that one right there. I don't even have to expand on that one. Uh, Yep, just going to leave that one right there. But it also says, by the way, that God will act. He's not passive. It didn't say he's passive. Paul takes that and builds in the same thought in the New Testament in Romans 12. In verse 19, it says... Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, quoting Deuteronomy 32, vengeance is mine. I will repay. To the contrary, for you, that's on God. Wrath and repay is God. To, to you, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but action Overcome evil with good. Don't really have to expand on that. I could tear it apart and pick it apart, but the blunt English is pretty clear. The author of Hebrews notes the same thing in chapter 10 and says, It's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of God. It is a God who acts. So know what he said, first of all. And then second of all, remain humble. Seek in peace. Three quick verses and we'll pray. First Peter 3 verse 9 says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. This is such a huge line. For to this you were called. We love to talk about what am I called to do? What's my calling? What am I called to do? I can tell you you're called to make disciples. That's what Christ said. But Peter says right here, if you want to talk about calling... Don't revile people who revile. Don't don't repay evil for evil, but there's an opposite. On the opposite, bless. Like, bless that you may obtain a blessing. It comes around, goes around. You think it's not biblical? I'm not. It is. It's in there. Okay? God's in control, but it's biblical. Verse 37. Verse 11, or chapter 37 of Psalm, verse 11. says... But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. The meek shall inherit. Uh, Jesus quoted part of this in Matthew 5, verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Meek is humble. Humble. You feel like David was being humble? I don't think you can find a better example in the Bible of humility other than Christ. Someone who has literally got the opportunity of a lifetime to take what God already gave him and instead he defies his own men and lays himself face down in the dirt and says, I'm going to trust God's plan. Epic humility in knowing God's direction. So stand up with me and we're going to sing one more song. We do we do every week and.
if you want, listen, you want to talk to me, if, if God's moving in your heart in any way, come talk to me. You don't have to come right now. You can come after. You can come now if you want. Uh, but, but I want you to remember is when temptation comes, when confrontation comes, when there's confusion about what God's saying or what God's really doing or what God really wants, first stop and spend a minute knowing his word. Stop and spend a minute knowing his word. And then make sure you're taking a position of humbleness, a position of meekness, and you're seeking peace. Seeking peace. Um, Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to be in your word together. I thank you for the opportunity to have a location to do that in. Uh, Father, as we sing one more song, Lord, it's, uh, it's just an opportunity for us to pause a minute before we leave and process what your word says. Not what I said, what your word says. And let us align our lives with what you say in your word. And Father, I pray that no matter what we do, we never make trophies out of David. We never make curses out of Saul. Lord, that we're able to always look at your word and say, this is, this is Christ. This is, this is my God. This is, I see Jesus here. And let it, let that, let you shape our lives, Lord, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.